Hi, and welcome to a podcast from Hope Springs Church Coventry. For more, please find us on Facebook at Hope Springs Church or on Twitter, we're at Hope Springs Cobb. Thank you and enjoy. Heavenly Father, thank you that uh, you make yourself known uh, to us, that you reveal yourself to us, that it is your delight uh, for us to know you, for us to see you, that by your Holy Spirit um, you are within us and that you reveal Christ to us and in us and through us. So Heavenly Father, I pray that um, through everything this morning, uh, through everything that we encounter, through everything that we experience, through everything that we perceive and recognise, Uh, that you would help us to see Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Right, so today I'm going to kind of pick up with what we've been doing about seeing Jesus. Um, And what I want to do is just kind of unpack a little bit more about when we talk about seeing, we're not talking about uh, just just glancing at something or just just looking at something, but it's a deliberate choice that there's some sort of... uh, uh, there's a deliberate nature about it that you are turning away from other options to focus on one thing. That's what, when we're talking about seeing, that's really what we're talking about. There are other options to be seen, but at this moment in time, I'm choosing to focus my attention on this. So when we talk about seeing a couple of weeks ago, we, we kind of unpacked the language around seeing. We, we realized that it was about some sort of choice, some sort of perception, some sort of recognition. Um, and that, there, that there's this, this, this focus, this immersion, this decision is being made to, to focus in on something. Um, so what I want to talk about, the kind of deliberate nature of tr- choosing Jesus to be the person that we focus upon. Now, uh, because Steve started off with an embarrassing story about fighting uh, the waves, which was kind of cool, actually. I, I'm going to start off with a, an embarrassing story about Steve. No. <laughs> Um, I'm going to start off with my own embarrassing story. There was this time uh, around 2005 when I first uh, encountered uh, Rob Bell and, and, and his teaching and stuff. It was a youth work at the conference. So I, I was working for Open Doors as a youth worker and he was speaking there. And I was just like, oh my goodness, this is a whole new world. It just opened up to me. And so I went to kind of the Mars Hill website where I was the teaching pastor at the time and I downloaded literally everything I could find. It was a time when NUMA DVDs were coming out and there was just tons of stuff on like YouTube and everything. And uh, I, I immersed myself. I, I chose to focus upon Rob Ballin. I just devoured everything that he produced, like whether it was books or, or NUMA things. And I was so immersed in this to the point where I started to talk like him <laughs> and have his mannerisms, which is still here today, which is why I'm quite like roaming around and I, I use my uh, arms a lot. And I have self-referential humour that nobody else in the room gets, but I smirk at when I'm talking. Um, but there was this point, and Nick will, Nick will testify to this. So when I was going out and speaking to youth groups and stuff and doing uh, youth conferences or whatever, there'd be these points where I'd slow down to <laughs> emphasise the point I am making. And the thing with that is, is that I, I was so focused upon Rob Bell, and I pinched tons of his... Um, Tons of his messages, uh, almost verbatim actually. I, I, so, I listened to them so many times that I could almost just repeat them. Um, 
I'm sure nobody else does that. Uh, but yeah, it was really embarrassing because I started to talk with like a slight American accent as well at points. Um, the thing was, I, I chose to hone in on this guy, and, and it wasn't just that I was seeing him or immersing myself in what he was saying, and, and you know, like I downloaded his reading list, his recommended reading list, and I've read all the books on it. Um, but the point is that, that by focusing in on him and doing all these things, imitating him it, in, in the weirdest, stalkerish sort of way, I, I, I was formed by that. So there are still things, like I, I've kind of moved on hopefully from those sorts of things but there are still things that are, are, are formed in me something about seeing him or perceiving him or recognizing him or immersing myself in that in imitating that in following that in um discipling myself to that in a way is formational uh, so there are still things that are latent in 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 the way i read the bible in in the sort of things that i'm interested in in my mannerisms in the way i speak um, I'm not as engaging as a speaker as him, but there are some things in the way that I talk that are from that, because I, I, I focused in on that. I chose, I deliberately immersed myself in that whole kind of Rob Bow world, and, and it's formed something in me. I experienced something, and it actually changed me. Um, if, if, um, if I hadn't immersed myself, if I hadn't focused in on that, then it wouldn't have had these impacts. The proof of the pudding is that I was changed by doing those things. So I really saw him, I really recognised him, I really uh, submitted myself to that. There was a sort of um, a choice, a deliberate choice to say, yes, this is what I want to learn from. And so there's a, there's a submission to that, there's an openness to that, which I'm excluding other things. And the proof is that it changed me. Like, so I listen to other preachers, I read other people, but the, the challenge is, is, are those things forming something in me or not? Have I really seen them? And the proof is, whether it's changed me or not, whether it's formed something in me. Uh, so let's uh, go to, to the Hebrews text. Um, I've got to be honest that until Steve started talking about this text, I never, ever paid that much attention uh, to this text at all. And now I'm just like, wow, this is amazing. Like, I've always thought that Hebrews was a really, really uh, difficult uh, book to read. I've read it, and I was just like, man, this is so stodgy and so uh, relate, you know, like relating to a lot of Old Testament sort of ideas uh, that I've never really got it. And then when Steve was talking about it, just saying, this is all this book's about, I was like, oh my goodness, it really is. <laughs> it's amazing. So turn, turn uh, to Hebrews 2. This is kind of where we've been going. You see, because the, the text in Hebrews that you'd think, when we're talking about seeing Jesus, you'd think like Hebrews 12, right? Yeah. Fix and arise upon Jesus, the author and professor of faith. But no, Steve chooses some really obscure verse. Um, so let's just find it. Um, where is it? I'm, I'm driving a new Bible today, so it's really hard. So the context is, so right at the start of Hebrews 1, it talks about all these different revelations of God. Okay, so, and note the, the, the word, it's, we're talking about God. So there's different revelations of God that have come. You know, we've had the prophets, we've had the Torah, we've had angels, ministering angels. Uh, but God has chosen Jesus to be the exact representation. So we're talking specifically, what's God like? God is like Jesus. Uh, because God is an abstract term, and we can freight that with all sorts of meaning. But God has chosen to remove the abstraction and do something concrete, something very specific in Jesus. If you want to know what God's like, and Steve's spoken on this a lot, look at Jesus. Okay, because God's this nebulous idea. You know, Jesus says, you know, no one has ever seen the Father, but you've seen me. 
Okay, so if you want to know what God's like, this nebulous, abstract concept, this something that we don't perceive, something we don't see, we, God's given us something concrete to look at. So that's Jesus. And that's the context of the whole letter. It goes through all of these different contexts of, well, you've seen Moses, but he's not as good as Jesus. You've seen Joshua, but he's not as good as Jesus. You've seen the sacrificial system at the temple, but it's not as good as Jesus. You've seen Melchizedek, but it's not as good as Jesus. You've seen all of these people, but it's not as good as Jesus at revealing God. And so when we, when we dive in, and it talks about what God has done in putting everything under subjection to Jesus, and it says the point is this, is like, um, God left nothing that is not subject to them, yet at present we do not see everything as subject to them, but we do see Jesus. So the temptation is, is that we'd look at these other things. Like there's wars, rumours of wars, the things that we were even praying about, you know, people, there's people that are sick, there's people in poverty, there's exper- people experiencing this world, all sorts of pain and terror and horror and unspeakable things that our hearts absolutely break for and that our hearts would break for if we were cogn- cognizant of what was going on. Things going on in our own city that just shouldn't stand. And the temptation, like Steve was talking about, um, is that we'd look at those things that would bring our eyes to focus on those things. And we could do it in a really, really good way. Oh, let's make some positive change. Let's do something positive and change these things. But the problem is, is that when we encounter those things, again, like Steve said, like last week's message, just like kind of articulating this, as soon as you dive into the system and try and combat the system on its own terms, you just become part of the system. You're just the flip side of the same coin. We see that in politics. Oh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm a lever. And so how do we combat levers? Well, we'll just, we'll just produce more rhetoric about remaining. And it's just this, we, we break it down into these binary options and, and then you just bash it into each other. Nothing changes, nothing positive. You just get one group of people trying to coerce this other group of people to think like them. And that's the temptation, isn't it? So these are the options we've got to look at. We can look at a political way of changing the world. We can look at a humanitarian way of changing the world. We can just look at not even caring one jot and just not bother about changing the world and just go and have our own great time. We don't see these things as subject to Jesus as yet, but we do see him. And catch the tone in that. that that's a realistic thing. Sometimes, you know, Christianity can be this kind of airy-fairy kind of really like, removed from reality you know oh i believe i believe i believe i believe you know we'll go to church and have a great time and we'll ignore everything that's going on in the world because you know well the spirit's blessed me praise god and we can be removed from reality but this this verse is so real we do not see these things as subject to jesus but we do see him and by seeing him there's a hope that's injected into that situation automatically these things are rubbish but we see him we see the potential for change because he has been reconciling the world to God that all things will eventually become subject to him. And so throughout Hebrews, it is this specific revelation of Jesus Christ that the writer of Hebrews is pointing to all the time. He's not talking about abstract things. He's not talking about engaging the political systems of the day or even engaging in the religious systems of the day. He's not talking about engaging with God, because God could be many things to many people. He's talking about engaging with Jesus, seeing Jesus specifically. He's not talking about abstract concepts. Like we, could, we could talk uh, in terms of justice. God is a just God. You know, that's the lens that we will see the world through. God is just, and therefore, if people are bad, they must pay. 
Because God is a just God, and that's how we see God. We see God through his justice, or through his judgment. Or even, uh, as probably we'd more lean towards, we see God through his love. God is so loving. And, and yet we freight the, the, the concept of love. Again, it's an abstract thing. We freight it with all of our understanding of love. Well, well love doesn't say harsh things to anybody. You know, love can't correct anything. Love can't say, you know, that, that's great, but maybe you need to change this because that's not healthy. Love can't say that because it's got to be, it's got to tiptoe around things. But no, the Bible, uh, again, it, the lens that we see it through, the, the thing that we're called to focus on, is not an abstract concept and then import Jesus into that or import God into that. Saying Jesus is the concrete example of exactly what the Father is like, and that concrete example is how you understand everything else. If you want to know what goodness looks like. Don't just think of a superlative version of yourself. You look at Jesus. If you want to see what love looks like, if you want to experience what love is, then look at Jesus first. Because love does reach out in the most awkward situations to those who are pushed out. To prostitutes, which is just an awkward conversation to have. Just imagine if Steve came in and there was a prostitute washing his feet with her tears while he was trying to speak to you. Awkward! Almost is like cards against muggles. That would be that awkward. Um, if, if you want to know what love looks like but the thing is love doesn't just look like that kind of inclusive well I can get on board with you know looking after the people that are marginalised but what about those Pharisees you know like well we've got to look after them and it's just like well actually love sometimes looks like saying you're wrong absolutely 100% like I, I, I will disagree with you about what you are saying because that is wrong because sometimes we don't, we don't want love to be like that because that's a hard conversation to have, isn't it, with someone? You know, that's not helpful, that's not healthy. The way you're articulating that isn't great. And you've misunderstood what, what Jesus is about, what God is about. And so it's all being very specific about Jesus. So we have options. But the Bible is telling us, Hebrews is telling us, is saying, look, you have these options. You could look at a nebulous concept of God. You could look at the Torah. You could look at your abstract ideas about how the world should be changed through love or through charity or through justice movements. But it is saying, the example that you have, the thing that you need to focus on is Jesus, the author and perfecter of a faith. If you don't start with Jesus... If you don't begin with Jesus, if Jesus isn't the instigator, then you will not end up with Jesus. He is the author and perfecter. He's the beginner and the finisher of our faith. If you don't start with Jesus, you don't end up with Jesus. And the goal is, as Christians, that we would become like Jesus. Okay, if we want to do other things, then don't call it Christian. If you want to end with Jesus, you have to start with Jesus. All other things are like nice things. Okay, it's that start. That's how the Bible paints it. Um, and the thing about seeing Jesus is, it isn't this glance. It isn't just determining to study it. Okay, which is kind of my inclination. Go read tons of books about it. Go get podcasts about it, just like Rob Bell, and then you'll end up speaking and, and having his mannerisms. It's experiential. Jesus isn't like all the other options. All the other options that we have to look at good or bad, political, abstract theories, whatever you want. None of those things gets revealed inside of us by the same spirit that animated Jesus. There's something very specific about it. There is no other thing that we can follow that will inspire us, literally inspire, like fill our spirit. 
like Jesus. So turn with me to um, Matthew 16. Now this is really borrowing a little bit from Rob Bell. You might recognise it if you've ever seen Dust, the Numa. May the dust of your rabbi. Um, so, so in Matthew 16, this, this is a really curious little anecdote that's been thrown in there. I don't know if you ever really pay attention to, to things like the geography of where they tell you Jesus is. So um, from verse 13, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he said to the disciples, who do people say the son of man is? So if, if you read the Bible like me, it's just like, oh yeah, he's gone to some place. Just really normal. Jesus goes to places, but it, it's just really odd. So it would it, be like um, Steve, Steve teaching and having a band of followers, and then all of a sudden he pops up in like Bosnia or something. It's just really random. Caesarea Philippi, if you flick to the, if you've got real Bibles, where you've got your maps at the back, Caesarea Philippi is just right out of the way. Like, it's kind of like, I think I worked it out for a year thing, you know, like it's about five or six days walk out of the way of the region of Galilee. It's, not, it's like far off in the north, it's nowhere near Jerusalem, it's nowhere near Nazareth, it's nowhere near the Sea of Galilee. It's just right out of the way in pagan country. What a curious place. Jesus is just arbitrarily just going, you know, tens, hundreds of miles out of his way just to make a statement. And it's really curious. But, and the statement he wants to make is this, or the question that he's asking is, who, who do people say that I am? What are you seeing when you see me? And so a little bit of uh, geography, uh, a bit of a history lesson around Caesarea Philippi. So Caesarea Philippi um, was formerly known as Pan, the village of Pan. Now Pan is, is like a Greco-Roman god. Do you know the, the, the little fawn-type baby dude? You know, the one with the goat's legs? that goes around playing pan pipes, which is where we get the word pan from. This was a major shrine to Pan. And, and, and Pan is, is a god of, of, of excess. And it's also where we get the word panic from. So one of, one of the attributes of this god Pan was that he would cause panic. So there's these shrines to Pan, this pagan god Pan of, of excess and panic and, and defeating your enemies. So that's one thing that's going on at Caesarea Philippi. Now another thing around Caesarea Philippi is that it's a village in front of a great big mountain. Okay, and in the side of this mountain there is um, shrines to Pan carved into the mountain, but there's a great big crack running out of it, and out of that crack comes waters, a river which eventually becomes the River Jordan. And, and, and this thing was known as the Gates of Hades. The big crack in the rock is known as the Gates of Hades. And it's deliberately called the Gates of Hades. It wasn't called the Gates of Sheol, which is a Hebrew word. It's called the Gates of Hades. But again, Greco-Roman, because they thought that you could pass through there. And if you know your kind of um, Greco-Roman sort of mythology, the river was where Quran, the boatman, would take you across into Hades, which is where the netherworld, which is where the spirits of the dead reside. So they thought this big crack in the rock was where the, the spirits of the netherworld, the people of Pastan, could come and go as they please. Okay, so you've got pan shrines, this worship of pan, some pagan god. 
You've got this great big centre for spirituality, you know, where the, the dead can come and go from here. This is where the dead go. This is the netherworld. This is the access to the, the netherworld. And it's not like our kind of evangelical idea of hell. It's just somewhere where dead bodies, dead people go after they've expired. But then also, you'll notice from the name, the renaming of the place is Caesarea Philippi. So basically, over time, the, the, the village kind of uh, was, was redeveloped for Caesar. It was developed by a guy called Philip the Tetrap, which is one of the Herod the Great's three sons. So this is all in the time of Jesus. So F- Philip rebuilt this place. He had a build- building project. He put a mall in there and a nice like, ring road and everything, and car parks, and obviously loads of chains of restaurants. And he rebuilt it and he dedicated it to Caesar, hence the name Caesarea. Philippi, I'll also dedicate it to myself. So there's, there's this, there's this like, uh, pagan religion, so alternative religions. There's spirituality, some sort of nebulous spirituality going on. And there's this kind of um, nationalism, if you will, so the religion and nationalism. So like, yeah, we're, 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 we're part of Rome. You know, Rome is the way forwards. Rome means Rome. And so all of this is going on in this place where Jesus decides to take his disciples and ask them the question in the midst of all of this in the midst of this culture in the midst of all these other religions in the midst of all of these other abstract concepts about God and belief and spirituality and all these different ways of organising the world who do you think I am? if I put myself against this backdrop who do you think I am? you know who are you seeing when you look at me? What is, the, what is the, the concept of Jesus? This is what he's asking. And they replied in, in brilliant, really um, <laughs> random ways. They replied, some say John, the Baptist. <coughs> others say Elijah. Still others, Jeremiah. Or Dave. Or Pete. Or Bob. <coughs> but what about you? Because the problem is, is that we can, we can say, well, these are, these are the things that we could think about Jesus. We could distance it from ourselves." Well, you know, other people are saying Jesus is just a really nice guy. Jesus is somebody like Mother Teresa or Bob Geldof or Nelson Mandela. And Jesus cuts through all of that kind of equivocation and distancing ourselves from it, from being able to commit to something. Because as soon as we articulate it, you know, we've, 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 we've pinned our flag. We've stated what we actually think. And Jesus cuts through all of that. Yeah, I don't care what other people are saying. What do you guys think? You've been following me for nearly three years. Okay, and we've been going through all the different religion, all the different ways of orientating society, and you've seen me, you've watched me, you've followed me. So what are you thinking now? What, who do you think I am? <clears throat> and then Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah. The son of the living God. Now, Messiah is a freighted term, okay? Messiah isn't just one unified concept from the Old Testament. There was no one idea of who the Messiah would be. There's many different ideas of who the Messiah would be. Some thought he'd be a priest in in kind of the Aaronic tradition. So he'd be like the Levite of all Levites. Some thought he'd be a new Moses. And you see this referenced in various places in the Bible, I think, in John. Uh, So some sort of uh, um, leader, of a nation some thought he'd be in the line of David some new Davidic warrior king to come and deliver him from his enemies so saying he's the Messiah 
It's kind of getting there. And he says, you are the son of the living God. Now, Peter's got even closer. But by saying Messiah, Jesus is like, well, you know what? You've tied the idea of Messiah with the son of the living God. So the representation of God on earth. And Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon by Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but my Father in heaven. And I'll tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church. And the gates of Hades, which isn't just like some spiritual warfare thing, it's actually a physical place right behind him. Yeah. It'd be like me talking about, and the Nissan garage just over there will not stand against you. I don't know why they would, but, you know, Nissan dealerships, eh? <clears throat> and I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he orders his disciples not to tell anybody that he was the Messiah. And, and you know, in theology they call this the messianic secret. Why did Jesus want to keep it a secret? We don't know. But I suspect that it was because they'd recognised that he is the Messiah, but they have no clue what that means. They still think of the Messiah in these other terms. Well, you could be the Davidic Messiah, the one with the army, and let's go kill everybody. They certainly don't recognise Jesus for what he is actually trying to do. And we know this because of what happens next. So we've had all of this. Who do you say I am in the midst of all these other options? Oh, well, you're the Messiah. Great, we're halfway there. What do you think the Messiah is? Another abstract concept, and Jesus is really tunnelling down into this. And from that point on, so he, he hasn't taught it yet... But from this point on, from the time when Peter says, you are the Messiah, and the disciples are like, oh yeah, you can be the Messiah. This is when Jesus starts teaching this. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief of priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, because you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Peter, you might have said that I'm the Messiah, but you have no idea. This is what the Messiah does. The Messiah goes and suffers and dies and gives himself over, and on the third day he will be vindicated. Peter, you do not know who I am yet. You haven't seen me (laughs) properly. This is what the Messiah is really about. This is what God is really about. They thought they knew who it was, but they still hadn't honed in on the real Jesus, on who Jesus really was and what he was about. But he began to teach them. He began to encourage them to follow him and see. And he unpacked, look, the way God works in this world isn't by coercive violence, by overpowering all the other things. He doesn't come in the line of all of these things, of, of Moses, of Joshua, of David, of the angels, like in Hebrews. You've seen these things, but they ain't the exact representation. They got you part way there, but they're not the real thing. Peter, I need you to understand these things. And I'm going to be harsh with you because I need you to wake up from this stupor that you're in about what you think the Messiah is. Okay, so get behind me, Satan. You have no idea what you are talking about yet. But I will teach you. And so turn with me uh, to, to 1 John. <clears throat> because the thing is, is the way that we see Jesus isn't just by looking or by inheriting things, but it is by experience, it is by following, it is by encountering, it is by this revelation of the Holy Spirit within us. And so just 1 John 1, there's this really fascinating uh, kind of couple of pericopes about um, 
Jesus calling the disciples. <clears throat> and what I want you to notice is the language that's being used here. So there's all this language about seeing things, perceiving things, abiding, following. And all of this, this language is all interweaved. And, and John, um, if you ever read the Gospel of John, just notice words like when he talks about seeing something. Or when he talks about staying somewhere. Or coming with. And all this sort of language is really laboured in John. And it comes back to it again and again. So what I really want to do here is just make the connection between seeing and following and then from following to staying with or abiding you know abide is just this really this this really massive concept in the in the gospel of john um so from verse 35 so this is talking about john the baptist the next day john was there again with two of his disciples and when jesus passed by he said look or behold the lamb of god so John is pointing away from himself to his own disciples, saying, look, the Lamb of God. So he's taking their attention from himself, and he's focusing it in on Jesus. Sorry, sir, which chapter is it? Uh, chapter 1, and we're on verse 35. John 1, not 1 John. Is it John 1? John, the Gospel of John, okay. chapter 1. Not John. Not John. I don't even know why I bother sometimes. <laughs> okay so the next day john the baptist was there again with two of his disciples and when he saw jesus passing by he said look the lamb of god so john is automatically pointing away from himself towards jesus when the two disciples heard him say this they followed jesus turning around jesus saw them and asked what do you want Of course. What are you following me for? I mean, if he was walking through like hillfields, I could understand. What do you want? And they said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Which is like a really random question, right? Do you ever ever get these things where you read in the Bible and you're just like... So your, your master has just said, look at this guy, he's the Lamb of God. And the first thing you say to him is... You know, where's your pad? <laughs> Surely that would not be the first question you'd have. But anyway, where are you staying? I actually think that it's quite a freighted kind of idea that John's unpacking here. Come, he, ex- he replied, and you will see. <clears throat> so they went and they saw where he was staying and they spent that day with him and it was about four in the afternoon. Another random little note there. Why, why do they bother saying it's four in the afternoon? Nothing happens at four in the afternoon. Even in the Bible, nothing happens at four in the afternoon. <laughs> Three in the afternoon, six in the afternoon, nine in the afternoon, not four. But anyway, I think there's something in that. So if anybody wants to go away and study that out, just let us know. <clears throat> so note, first of all, that John is pointing away from himself to Jesus. And when, they, when Jesus engages with them, or when they engage with Jesus, it says that he sees them. <clears throat> he perceives them. He knows them. And this is, this is some of the freighted language in John. Because when, when it talks about seeing... It's not about seeing, it's about knowing uh, in, in an intimate way. You know that word know, the, the biblical word know, like Adam knew Eve. <coughs> it's a very intimate knowing. So Jesus saw them and he invited them. And when it says stay, he says, come and see where I abide. Now later on in John, it talks about Jesus not having anywhere to stay. So I wonder if John's labouring this kind of little point of, they saw how Jesus abided in the Father. John 15, all right? So Jesus invites them to come to this place where he abides. 
Andrew's Simon's Pe- uh, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who had heard that John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ, and brought him to Jesus. So notice like John's kind of chronology, he's borrowing bits from Matthew fifteen sixteen and bringing it back here because Peter gets renamed here as well. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. Simon, son of John, you'll be called Cephas, which is translated as Peter. <coughs> so there's kind of a weird link there between the text I just shared and this. Um, the next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Uh, Pete, uh, Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethesda. Philip found Nathaniel and told him, we found the one that Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote Jesus Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? Nathaniel said, Nanian, can anything good come from there? Come and see. Okay, so we get this echo of come and see again. And this kind of filters out through the rest of John as well. Um, when Jesus saw Nathaniel approaching him, he said of him, here is truly an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? So Jesus sees Nathaniel approaching, and Nathaniel's response to what Jesus says is, how do you know me? Not how have you seen me, but how do you know me? So there's this tie between, in the Gospel of John, between seeing and knowing. <coughs> and then, um, how do you know me, Nathaniel said. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Jesus said, you believe because I told you that I saw you under a fig tree. What a weird reason to believe in Jesus. (laughs) I saw you sat under a tree. Wow. (laughs) That's just (laughs) mind-blown. Then he added, very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, I just want to labour this point of seeing and knowing, experiencing. Okay, so I take the mickey out of the text a little bit because Nathaniel believes in Jesus because Jesus said, I saw you sat under a tree. Anybody else find that a little bit weird? It's really weird, right? But the thing is, is that sitting under a fig tree is a euphemism uh, for sitting under the, the, the prophets and the Torah. So you, you'll see it in, uh, I think it's in Malachi and Zechariah especially, there's this idea of security and safety for the nation of Israel when it's under the fig tree. And, and it's a euphemism for being sat under the teaching of the Torah. And so if we back up a bit, when Philip goes to Nathaniel to tell him about Jesus, what does he reference? He references Moses. This is the one who Moses has spoke about. So I'd, I'd suggest that what's going on is Nathaniel... Um, is, is a keen student of the Torah and he's despairing because he's seen the Romans occupying Israel and all of the good stuff that was going on in, in the Second Temple Judaic period and he's despairing because the things that he thought were supposed to happen from learning from the Torah the old, the old Bible just weren't happening and he was despairing and so when, when Philip comes to him and says look we found the one we found the one, the Messiah so again echoes of Matthew 15 and he uses this language for, for Nathaniel because he knows that Nathaniel is this student. You know, we found the one that the Old Testament points to. And Jesus said to him, Look, I know that you were studying this fact, you were looking into this stuff, you were trying so desperately to find some hope in there, and you just couldn't find it. But you'll see the heavens open again. So Jesus quotes from that bit in Genesis 20 something about God and Jacob, where Jacob says, 
you know, behold, God was in this place, and I never knew it. That's where it quotes from. And so, again, you, you have this idea of experiencing, being known by Jesus. Not knowing Jesus, but being known by him. That comes first. So, when we're talking about seeing Jesus, we're talking about experiencing Jesus. We're talking about being known by Jesus. We're talking about turning away from all of the other options. So Nathaniel's option was the Old Testament. And Jesus says to him, you know, come to me and you will see the things that you hoped for. And it's also about like going to see where Jesus abides, the place, the state, the, the way that Jesus exists in the world. So all these ideas of, of seeing Jesus are all tied up in this idea of experience and discipleship and following and living a life after him. And as, uh, as I followed after Rob Bell, and I got formed by Rob Bell in certain ways, that's the same with Jesus, only better. Um, Rob Bell's pretty cool, but you know. That's the same with Jesus, only better. As we look away from other things and make a deliberate decision to focus in on him, and that's not just, oh, I'm going to read my Bible and see just the passages about Jesus, so I'll ignore the really awkward bits. But it's about this choice to actually perceive how Jesus would live and act and move and have his being in this world in a very concrete fashion, not these abstract qualities that we kind of like to subsume everything in. And so to finish off then, let's just turn quickly to John 15 to kind of pick up that idea of uh, abiding. So, yeah, let's just go from the start. I only really want to pick up one verse, but it's kind of cool. Um... So Jesus is, this is kind of the start of his kind of uh, ruminations before going to the cross, basically, to his disciples. This is kind of like his final, final teachings. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no f- fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, or abide in me, and I will abide in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must abide in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you abide in me. So there's this whole connection, this deep knowing, this deep seeing, this deep experiencing of Jesus that it removes all the stress because I'm not going to change the world without Jesus. I can, I can work as hard as I want, but I'll just be a hamster on a treadmill going round and round because I can't bear any kingdom fruit, any lasting Jesus fruit, any fruit that started and ended in Jesus if I'm not abiding in him, if I'm not staying in him, if I'm not seeing him, if I'm not deliberately turning away from all the other options that I could have to focus on him. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you abide in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not abide in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown in the fire and burned. Harsh. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, whatever you wish, it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you may bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my followers. And this is a verse that I really wanted to pick out. I know I've kind of thrown a lot of kind of ideas, but... As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. Now abide in my love. And the thing is this, all of this seeing, all of this making a decision to turn away from one thing to another, all of this following, all of this experience of Jesus is all precluded by being known by him. You only love because I first loved you. Can you imagine what it would have been like for the disciples? I don't know if you think like me about it, but I, I, I used to think, or I still do actually, the, the disciples followed Jesus around and they saw him acting and doing all the cool stuff he did. 
and then occasionally he'd say you go do this cool stuff as well but essentially the relationship was one between a teacher and his students so look oh Jesus is doing cool stuff to that leper Jesus is doing cool stuff to that tax collector Jesus is doing cool stuff um, in, in healing this, this woman Jesus is doing cool stuff by uh, inviting the children to be with him and so I just have to be like that that's, that's pretty much where we're at right Jesus does this cool stuff and I have to imitate him but can you imagine what it would have been like to be with Jesus do you think that you would have experienced any cool stuff from his hand Do you think that you would have encountered his miracle working power? Not, not over there where Jesus is doing something to other people, but for yourself. I wonder how many times they were in some random place, because apparently Jesus really likes to go to random places, and they were no near, nowhere near any shops or chains of restaurants, and he just had a fish or a life and broke it between, you know, just the 13 of them. Because it says here that I have loved you. Not, I have taught you, or I have shown you a way to go, or I have been somebody that you look up to and imitate, but I have loved you. You have experienced me loving on you. Now, out of that, go and do the cool stuff. So this, Jesus isn't just someone that we imitate. Jesus is somebody that knows us in our deepest, darkest, most broken places. And he loves on us. And all of that wonderful miracle-working power that we see throughout his ministry for everybody else is also at work in, in, in Peter and in John and in Simon the Zealot and in Judas Iscariot, the one who betrays him. They're experiencing that every single day, Rob Bell. <laughs> as well as seeing all the other stuff. Because sometimes I think that we miss that. We're, we're, so, we're so after seeing this iconic Jesus, this, this leader, that we can copy him. And that's great. That's fantastic. But we miss the starting point of that Jesus has loved us. Jesus has loved on us in our brokenness, in all our mess up. That voice that comes to us and picks us up off the floor when we've crashed and burned. We experience that, and therefore that's how we can go to somebody who's crashed and burned and pick them up off the floor. We don't do that out of our own unction. We abide in him, and then we bear fruit. We encounter him. We, we are wrapped up in his everlasting arms of love so that we can love. We can't do it any other way. We can't just imitate this Jesus character. We have to be known by him and be wrapped up in him first because we only love because he has loved us first. And the key thing is this, is that Jesus did exactly the same. He didn't just go be all Messiah. He didn't just go and change the world and go to the cross and hang there and die and then get resurrected after three days. He knew the love of the Father first. As the Father has loved me. Jesus was perfectly aware of the everlasting arms of the Father encircling him and that's what empowered him to go and do and therefore he wrapped us up in the everlasting arms of love of the Father so that we could go and be like him. So when we see Jesus, when we're talking about seeing Jesus, we're talking about turning away from all the other options. We're talking about making a deliberate choice. But first and foremost, we have to know that he loves us. So when we're, when we're uh, I'll tell you what, it's so difficult not to go into some of the practical stuff. And there's this really cool thing that Misty was talking about. I said, I can't, I can't go into that. But when we talk about all these things, first and foremost, spend that time to know that Jesus loves you. In all the brokenness, in all the rubbish, in all the mocking, in all the successes, 
that it's because of the love of Jesus. And that's the only way we can go and do anything. So, in Jesus' name, may you know his love. Amen. 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 Very good, son. Thanks, son. Let's